Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Brian O'Keefe started fly fishing as a young boy. He started taking fish photos in an attempt to prove that he wasn't making up stories about the fish he was catching. He would go on to become one of the most well-known names in outdoor photography. On this episode of Anchored, we discuss his incredible evolution as an angler, photographer, world traveler, and industry pro. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Tightline Films. I've been working on various projects over at Anchored Outdoors with Kirk Gilchrist, who is the owner of Tightline Films. Since 2013, he specialized in producing marketing content for fellow outdoor enthusiasts. Tightline Films is a fully turnkey media production company that prides itself on making your vision come to life through visual media in a fun yet well-structured manner. They're proud of their 90% repeat customers, which I can proudly say that I am one of. Kirk delivers content on time and continues to over-deliver. Tightline Films has produced everything from Kickstarters to entire television series for some of the top outdoor networks. Whether it's a music video or a documentary, Tightline Films is ready to get to work for you. Head on over to www.tightlinefilms.com and let Kirk know how he can help. I was actually born in downtown Seattle, and I lived at the time across Lake Washington in, in Bellevue, Washington, which at the time was a nice little small middle-class town. Uh, now it's grown up with tall, high-rise buildings. I never go there, but... Uh, it was a nice place to be a kid. Were you a steelheader as a kid? Yeah, I actually would drive and not catch steelhead <laughs> in my early days, say uh, junior high and high school. But in my junior year in high school, I would drive all the way from Bellevue down to the North Umpqua in Oregon. And that's a pretty long drive, but I, I got my first 
fly caught summer steelhead on the North Umpqua when I was about 16 or 17. And I'd lost some steelhead when I was fishing for either Chinook or Silvers in, in rivers on the Olympic Peninsula. My my brother was the tribal dentist for the Queet, Ho, and Quinault Indians for a few years. And so he had a really nice clinic on the Olympic Peninsula. And, you know, really back then there was a few drift boat guides, but not much else. And we would have some of those rivers all to ourselves and just had fantastic fishing in the, right around the, right around 1970 or so. I was just starting high school. He was just out of college or maybe I was in my sophomore year of high school or something. But it was fun. I, you know, it was a, it was a mystery fish. But in the Pacific Northwest, it's all you heard about. But actually catching one when you don't know what you're doing is, is a different deal. So I had a lot of trial and error. Was that still at the time when they said that you could not catch winter steelhead on the fly? No, that was, oh, maybe among a certain crowd. But, you know, the, some of the people that did it back in the day, you know, Harry Lemire and Enos Bradner and all the all the famous people from that era, they were catching Steelhead on the Skagit and the Sock and the Stillaguamish all all year round. So, do you know why they used to say that? I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think back to the books that I'd read where it mentioned that people thought that you generally couldn't catch winter steelhead on the fly. Was that the 50s and 60s? That's very possible. You know, where you grew up and where I grew up, winter steelheading was extremely popular, but mostly with gear pulling plugs like hot shots fishing with you know row and yarn and corkies and spinning glows that sort of thing so it was a bounce it on the bottom technique and they just didn't think in that cold water that steelhead would rise up to a swung fly and and uh, but there were people doing it in the you know i i go back with fly fishing into the 60s so it was it was a known quantity at that point in time not popular. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's pretty popular now. Is it surreal to you looking back, like looking at it now and seeing this whole culture and mindset around winter, well, about, around steelhead in general? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and really, you know, the two-handed thing really put steelhead into, you know, hyperdrive with just people enjoying the cast for one thing and then the whole stigma of spay fishing. So, yeah, it's pretty different. You know, I remember the first spay rods I had, and I don't do a lot of spay fishing. April, I like single-hand fishing. Just I know I'm weird, but um, when I was a rep, you know, I repped two rod companies. I was an Orvis rep in the mid-'80s, and then later on after, you know, a rep is, you know, you get hired and fired all the time. You never know who you're going to work for next year, but I was also the Scott Rod rep. But my first Orvis spay rod samples, you know, that – it was East Coast, and it was uh, you know Newfoundland and Iceland and Scotland, and it was fifteen foot nine weight rods, and they weighed a ton, and the lines were that big around, you know, huge, and mostly double tapers, so it was heavy, clunky, hard to walk down these trails, you know, like on the Sandy River or other places that are really, really tight, because I think a lot of the spay rod fishing done in Canada and in Europe was very open country. And so it was just really a pain. Um, I had three sample rods. They all were gigantic. And, and so I didn't get off to the best start. So I just stayed, you know, I fished still with a nine and a half or 10 foot seven weight most of the time. And 
I just kind of like it. I never really bought into the whole spade game, even though it's a subculture of its own. But mostly what I see are just slightly overweight, middle-aged, older men with food in their beards and a uh, little ponytail from BC and a lot of Filson and wool. So it's a really neat little club. But, a little bit uh, of scotch in hand and yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're making me homesick. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not catching very many fish, but um, but I I still I mean I swing flies. I don't nymph fish for steelhead. I just think that's not my thing. But I do like that tug on a shorter, lighter rod. Yeah, and you're also a weapon on a single hand rod, so that's you know not to be discredited. I've seen you fish. You know what you're doing. Well, thank you, but. You know, I just enjoy the cast. I enjoy spade casting. I just don't really like catching fish on spade rods. I think it's kind of heavy, clunky. They have to drag that big line around with them. It's really, a summer steelhead in the northwest is five to eight pounds usually, so it's not that gigantic of a fish that fights that well. Um, it fights pretty good, but having a you know a sailfish-sized reel and a gigantic rod is kind of overkill in my opinion. So. Uh, but if I was a fly shop owner, I would, I'd probably be in business today because of spay. It's, you know, because the lines are so complicated and people don't remember what they have, they kind of constantly have to buy new tips and things. So it's kept a lot of fly shops in business. <laughs> I kind of like fishing behind them actually, because they're usually way out in the middle of the river where the fish aren't. And then their loops don't open up. And so their fly just sometimes is sort of just tumbling, drifting down the water, not really swinging till the very end of their cast. I know you've seen all that a million times guiding, but um, I just sort of have fun with it. Almost all my friends are spay fishermen. and We just go round and round. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, it's respectable and it makes sense. I mean, I feel more connected to the fish and to my fly when I'm fishing a, a single hand rod too, so... Makes sense. Now, let's backtrack a little bit. So how did you get into fishing? Well, it's a interesting story and a, and a lucky one for me because my mother's father, my grandfather, was a dry fly purist. And he was too young to get into World War I with the United States. So he somehow scampered over to England and he was welcomed into the RAF, the Royal Air Force. And so I don't really know exactly what he did during the war. Um, he was over there and he met this colonel person who was a fly fisherman on the chalk streams of England. And that's sort of where he learned the art of really traditional upstream dry fly trout fishing. And to this day, many of those streams don't allow wading. They don't allow nymphs or streamers and only upstream presentation. So he eventually when he came back, he worked for the Forest Service his whole life. And he was in Arizona, Mount Shasta, California. And then he was the supervisor or superintendent, the big boss of the Bitterroot Lolo National Forest in Missoula. So you can imagine he kind of probably worked that angle as a fly fisherman into his, into his career. And then I was just becoming old enough to fly fish. I was probably about eight when my brother and I would start visiting in the summer and for two years. We only did 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the yard and knots and things like that. And we thought, man, we're going to Montana to go fishing, but we never went fishing. We only learned how to cast, and he was uh, super strict. So a river runs through a type 
lifestyle. And in fact, compared to the book and movie, we did our fishing eventually on the Big Blackfoot River, which was the Norman McLean's river in the book. So two brothers, a strict granddad, a little different than the book, and 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock until we could cast and bend and roll cast. And, and then finally, our third summer, we actually went fishing. And, uh, you know, on the Blackfoot River, in, in those days, you could have a 50 fish day with a Joe's Hopper. We only fished four flies, a, a gray wolf, a muddler, a Joe's Hopper. And there's a fourth one somewhere, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it was a great way to be a kid. We were, we didn't really know much else about fly fishing except that sort of traditional English style. Although after reading Outdoor Life and all the magazines in my school libraries, I realized there was a bigger world out there. And when I got my driver's license, I started going beyond the Missoula and fishing the Beaverhead and the Madison. And I just, you know, soaked it all up and I never stopped. I mean, I fished a lot as a kid and, uh, you know, I would drive from Bellevue in high school up to Vancouver Island and fish all those cool steelhead rivers up there. And, uh, yeah, just never stopped. And then I had a deal. My mother uh, taught art at the University of Washington. And so she always steered me into, you know, just fish, have fun with life. You don't have to be like your brother and go to dental school and all that stuff. Just have fun. And, and so fishing kind of was my fun. I, you know, I love skiing and lots of other things too, but, um, I, I decided I was probably going to go to Oregon State University, but before that, I went from high school. I, at that point in time, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and from there, I went to New Zealand in 1973 just to fish for a few months and then come back and go to college, but it turned into five months, and then I extended my visa to six months and, and fished my brains out up and down New Zealand, just backpacking and hiking into every little stream. Never saw another angler. Unbelievable fishing, you can imagine. And they finally caught me, you know, and kicked me out of the country. And that's, you know, all criminals end up in Australia, right? So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, so I was deported, uh, escorted to the airport in Christchurch by the police and put on a plane to Melbourne. And, I didn't have very much money, but I bought a old Volkswagen, drove it on the Nullarbor all the way to Perth, and then worked mm -hmm. out there, saved some money, and then went trout fishing up in India in the Himalayas, and then finally came home, but it was the beginning of summer, so I got a job in Alaska and lived on the Kenai River, and then I had all that trout fishing almost all to myself back then, and then from there I went to Oregon State and then Central Oregon College and other places. So it was a roundabout way to you know, do kind of what my mother thought was cool, was have fun, that you'll find a job. It doesn't have to be in a tall building or a big corporation. Just have fun and, and something will work out. So I was a ski bum and I was a ski patrolman and then a guide, you know, fly fishing guide in the winter. And I did that for a while and made sure I, I wanted to quit guiding on my 30th birthday and, and actually get maybe a real job or something like that. But it was in the fly fishing business. I was a sales rep and did that for 20 some years. So I think I went a little past your question. <laughs> so you're talking about your grandpa is the dry fly purist. Where was your dad in all of this? Was dad around? 
Oh, yeah, a little bit here and there. He was a, sort of a deadbeat dad. And uh, so he had a, a job that took him out of state, out of country, who knows where, for sometimes a long, long time. And I think he just kind of bailed on us. But uh, you know, my mom was super solid. And my brother and I were very independent. We we had all these different sports to do. And we, we both liked school. My brother excelled at, at school and college and, and dentistry, et cetera. So we didn't need to really have him around, to be honest. And we didn't really think he was that cool of a guy. <laughs> but uh, he, he skipped a generation. So with my grandfather as the dry fly purist, um, my mother loves to fish. She's 92 or 93 right now. And she's, you know, grew up in that environment of the wicker creel and bamboo rods and silk lines in Montana. And then uh, her brother, my uncle John, was a lifetime fisherman and hunter like his father, my grandfather. And so sort of a family tradition that, that fly fishing was what you do. And the reason I went to New Zealand is because my grandparents went there in 1951, if you can imagine that. I mean, how do you get to New Zealand in 1951 when from San Francisco to Japan was a 30-some hour flight and trip in toll? You know, so, you know, well, they kept a journal and had maps, and I copied all that information down as a 14-year-old kid, and I just lived and loved their stories about these big brown trout in New Zealand. And I just saved lawn mowing money and car washing money and eventually, you know, Got, got a visa. It wasn't real easy and then got down there. But yeah, they were a huge influence, uh, camping, fishing. Uh, and they were a little ahead of their time. My grandmother, you know, they were both born in the 1800s. You know, my grandmother was a biologist. And so I learned birding and wildflowers and, and just respect for nature through both of them, but especially her. And uh, so that was just a, a stroke of luck to be born with them, you know, at the right age or the right time to just take us under their wing and, and away we went and phew, off we go. Yeah. I was going to ask you how you heard about New Zealand back then, because that, I mean, the seventies, that's pretty early, right? It wasn't really a popular fishing destination, was it? Internationally, no, I mean. No. In fact, when I went, I think I'd only ever found one magazine article um, about New Zealand and uh Actually, maybe two. One was by Joe Brooks, and the other one was by, oh, shoot, I can't remember his name. But anyway, you know, well-known authors at the time, and there weren't really any fly fishing magazines either, so it was just in the outdoor life and field and stream type uh, publications. But most of my friends, when I said, oh, I'm going to New Zealand, you know, they go, what, what is this in New Zealand? <laughs> there was like headhunters and and, you know, shrinking heads where I said, nice, I guess you're thinking of New Guinea, I think. But, right. <laughs> that's really funny. When did you pick up a camera? Well, that's kind of funny. Um, it, it was a joke. I, I used to fish on my own on my little 10 speed, or not my 10 speed bike. That was my second bike. My first bike was a Stingray. And I'd ride that from our house down to Lake Washington and bass fish. And it was really good. There was a lot of big bass and I didn't keep them. It's pretty hard to haul around bass on your bike. So uh, and I did keep a couple, but, well, I apparently was a typical kid and kind of under my, or in my brother's shadow a lot, you know, because he was excelled at school and I was more of a into recess and sports. And, <laughs> and, you know, so, you know, but like a big brother, little brother, little brother always kind of is coming up behind the, the, 
the guy that did it all did it first. And so apparently I, I might, might have fibbed or told a few tall tales as a little kid, but I think all little kids do. So they were going to try to cure me of this, this possible habit of telling lies or being dishonest. <laughs> so on Christmas, I think I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13, something like that. I got a little Kodak Instamatic, and that was the very first point-and-shoot camera. Even, I don't know if you even remember, but you, you open the back, and you drop in a cassette of film, and you wind it like crazy, and everybody had them. And, you know, if you went to, a like, the Space Needle in Seattle, everybody had a Kodak Instamatic. And they were pretty good little cameras. And so I got that for Christmas, with the intention that I would take it bass fishing and take pictures of my fish. And then, you know, they would think kind of Freudian that, oh, I couldn't tell a lie because I couldn't prove it with a picture. So, you know, it was in my sock drawer all winter. Bass fishing didn't really get good until April or May. So when time came, I grabbed that little camera and put it in my little canvas creel over my shoulder and off I went on my bike and, you know, I did that typical pictures that people do when they start, first start taking fish pictures, have the bass on the gravel or in the sandbar, the rod laying next to it, and shoot straight down on it. It's just hideous. And uh, But eventually I used up the roll of film, and I told them, I said, hey, you guys, can we go down to Photomat and get the film developed? And they looked at me like, well, yeah, but what have you been taking pictures of, basketball? And I you know, just fishing, I guess, you know, whatever. And... Yeah, so back then you'd go to these, you know, overnight 24-hour photo places. You'd give them the film. You'd come back the next day and you have these big glossy photos. And we picked them up and I would hand them to my brother. And, wow. He'd hand them to my mom. Wow. And I went through 24 of those. <laughs> and so they realized that, you know, I wasn't lying about fishing, but I was probably lying about breaking a window or something. But uh, that's that's the first time, you know, that I kind of came out of my brother's shadow a little bit because people would come over to the house and. And my mother would show them my bass pictures, and that was usually all about my brother John. And so uh, that was the first time I really got, you know, singled out of doing something unique or some, or doing something fairly well, I suppose. But uh, that little camera went everywhere with me. I I shot everything. And as a teenager, I didn't sell any photos, but I had a few photos published, and uh, I don't know if. You remember a publication called Fishing and Hunting News. It was a newsprint, local. It was all over the country, but it was localized. And they didn't pay, but they'd take pictures and publish them. I thought it was pretty cool when I had <laughs> a picture in there. And, and I think that just sort of started the whole ball rolling. When I went to New Zealand, I still had that little Instamatic. And I was taking pictures and sending. Uh, I might have just been mailing the film home to my mother or something, but she commented on them and said, wow, these are actually, they, they look sort of professional, Brian. And, you know, that's really cool. And I think she really liked that as an art teacher, seeing that I did something that was quasi-art, even though it's very mechanical, not like painting or something. But so she helped me. Uh, she took some money out of my bank account and bought a, uh, a Pentax K1000. I think it was a $100 camera. Or it may have been a Minolta. I don't remember, but it was a $100 camera. And she shipped it down to me, thought I should have a better camera in New Zealand. And then I bought slide film, because that's what supposedly you're supposed to do if you wanted to sell pictures or something. And I used that camera for years and years and years. And, and it just sort of, I just enjoyed the, 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 the common fun of either photography and fishing and combining the two 
was just like what people do now for Instagram and everything too much. But, uh, it's just a good companion hobby. It was for me at least. And, and, uh, I just, I love it. I still like to, I mean, I take so many pictures with my iPhone. It's ridiculous, but I, I still enjoy pictures of bugs and food uh, on the river. And, you know, I still take fish pictures, but not, that's not my sole purpose. I've always liked the whole reason why we fish the big picture. So, Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how it all started, just to cure me from telling lies. <laughs> <laughs> did you end up finishing college? What did you go to school for? Well, I went to Oregon State in a fish and wildlife program, which was basically, again, kind of a family tradition. My my grandparents were biologists and my grandfather was a forester. But back in the, those days, you you had a fisheries background, forestry background, and, and range management. So it was deer and elk browse compared to... In, comparing coyote populations with rabbits, the whole cycle of everything, all rolled into this with one thing. Now people are more specialized. They're into forestry of one kind or another, or they're in fisheries, one kind or another, lots of different specialties. But I went and I was in a fish and wildlife program, and that really prepared people for being on, say, a fish and wildlife commission uh, state position, that sort of thing. So you had a complete background of, of all these outdoor activities. And uh, that was in Corvallis, Oregon. And I like Corvallis, Oregon. I like the beavers, but it w- really wasn't for me. And, and I did it backwards. I started, a, you know, a nice, you know, Pacific. It was the Pac-8 now. It's the Pac-12, but uh, nice college. And I went backwards. I, I heard about Central Oregon Community College in Bend, where the library looks straight at Mount Bachelor and the ski season goes till June. And I went, why am I not going to school there? So I bailed out of Oregon State, went to Central Oregon for three years and just loved it, had a blast. And then I was, uh, it was a pretty crazy skier and I got hurt, uh, separated my shoulder, needed two surgeries. And I thought, well, that's not that big a deal because you know, students have school insurance it turns out it's worthless <laughs> and i owed surgeons and anesthesiologists all this money and they took me to collection agencies and and so i quit school had to get a job and uh, i was not a trust funder april and so uh, once i got a job that led to another another and i and i never went back so i never did finish my fish and wildlife program although i took you know every science class imaginable that I could and enjoyed it a lot. And I think it just was all great information, whether I made a career out of it or not. But, uh, you know, my mother's original idea of just have fun, keep skiing, keep fishing, something will happen. Uh, it did, you know, so that's great. I, I, I often wonder if I, if I had finished up in that program and I would have worked for Oregon department of fish and wildlife or Alaska department of fish and wildlife, it probably would end up with a desk job. And what I saw when I did a little summer work with those groups was people working on budgets, um, always in meetings. They're getting sued left and right by different organizations. And, and that they, they would always tell me, Brian, you're going to love the field work. Like one job was to go out in a, a helicopter and knock out a beaver dam on a little creek in Alaska so the salmon could go through and spawn. Well, that's the kind of work that, you know, 20 two 21 year old kid would just love to do it's fun but then as you work your way up in, in your career you're in, you're going to end up in a job working on budgets and trying to keep everybody happy and that's impossible so in a roundabout way i 
learned a lot, but uh, didn't have to apply it to a career. I just still enjoy the knowledge I got from, you know, all these different um, zoology classes. And although I did kind of suck at chemistry, I have to admit. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> before I've got a bunch of questions about your career on that note, but before I go down that path, I just wanted to ask you. I remember you telling a story and admittedly, I think I was so absorbed with work at the time that I didn't fully appreciate that you were there. And you were telling a story about a flood, like a flash flood in New Zealand. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah. Wow. That was, that was amazing. And I even get to do a little name dropping on that story. So uh, yeah, I was a backpacker. Uh, I think I probably turned... I don't know if I was 20 yet because I went to New Zealand when I was 19. And I think yeah, I was probably still 19, so I was pretty young. And I'd been doing these big, long treks, as New Zealand's famous for, the Milford Trek, the uh, the Milford, let's see, Milford Trek, the Hollyford Trek, the Rootburn Trek, and a bunch of others in these national parks and just out in the middle of nowhere. And well, I teamed up at the trailhead with this, guy a little bit older than me from Switzerland and we were both basically doing the same thing walking the Hollyford track down the Hollyford River to the ocean and then at that point I was either going to walk back up because I was going to go slow and sort of fish my way or you can walk down the beach and get to this little town it's a great hike beautiful towering mountains on both sides of the river well it was raining at the trailhead and then it really started to pour as we were getting down the trail a little bit. My, my goal was to get to this hut because New Zealand has a lot of hut-to-hut -hut hikes. And they're old mining cabins. And hunters use them. A few fishermen use them now. And uh, they have chairs and pots and pans and, and bunks. And you throw your sleeping bag in there. It's just great. You don't have to carry as much stuff. So we're walking along. And this person knew English. We were chatting. And gosh, pretty soon, you know, the river had come up over the bank. And it's kind of running down the trail. And then pretty soon, it really rose, and we were had to go bushwhack uphill a little bit, trying to get to this first hut. And we eventually had the water was flooding so bad we had to carry our packs over our heads, and the water was up to our necks, and there was big bugs crawling on us and stuff. And we finally get to this little hut and uh, drenched and just tired and stumbling into this place and. The guest book that you're supposed to fill out because a lot of people will from will hike in and then do some climbs and they want to know where people were. The the name that was last written in that book was Sir Edmund Hillary. So he was on this mountain in our in our what would be our view if it wasn't raining so hard. So he was up there probably on a ledge and just bivied out in this horrible storm and these were exposed granite mountains. So the water would just pour down and nothing to slow it down. So if you take a funnel, you know, and you pour a ton in, it comes out at the bottom, like super hard. So this was the river just came up as we could watch it literally come up and all the debris floating in. And I decided I'm staying in the cabin because it's up on a little bit of high ground. And I thought, you know, I had to think about my whole trip because I really wanted to fish. Well, now it was out of the question. And this guy from Switzerland was in more of a hurry, more of a like a Pacific Crest Trail hiker, Appalachian Trail hiker, really booking, trying to get 15, 20 miles a day. And so he says, well, I got to get around this rock point according to the map. 
the river is very narrow. I want to get around there if it's too high, and then I'll have higher land to travel on it. And it turns out he drowned. So I, I never knew that until a month or two later. There wasn't internet. There wasn't cell phones, you know, so I, I didn't even see a newspaper. I, I don't remember how I found out, but someone had said a, a, a Switzerland hiker was missing, and then eventually he found his pack that had a little Swiss flag on it. And unfortunately, without internet or anything, I was the last person to see him, and I would have, you know, been able today to talk to parents or family about the trip and all that background information, but nobody knows any of that. But so Edmund, Sir Edmund Hillary is up there on some cliff, and I was stuck in that cabin for days. And you know how the sand flies are in New Zealand in some places? Oh, geez. And then... You know, because of the high water, the mice were all scurrying around looking for places to get out of the flood. So I had sand flies that were horrible. And I had a big kind of Afro hairdo back in those days. And I had a mouse had jumped in my hair at night and kind of burrowed in and was scratching around in my hair. And I had mice all over the cabin, bugs. And so on the guest book, I wrote a poem that was about three pages long and about sand flies and the mice and running out of food. And all this stuff, and then I signed my name on it. And, oh, I don't know, maybe six months later, in another horrible rainstorm, a friend of mine from high school was trying to catch up with me on my trip, but without cell phones or internet. It was kind of hard. And I would leave notes at the youth hostels and stuff, and he found a few. He was kind of going my way, but I got sidetracked, and I got thrown out. <laughs> he got sidetracked. And, but he finally did the Hollyford track. And he was, he saw my big poem and was reading it. And it was pouring down rain because it's the west side of New Zealand, which is one of the wettest places in the world. And then in the middle of the night, the door bursts open. And this guy named Steve, an American from Ohio, bursts in soaking wet, really kind of beat up. And, and he's just cussing and so mad about his tent he bought it up with leaky and didn't work and well it turns out I, I didn't take my tent to Australia when they kicked me out I grabbed a few things but I didn't think I'd be camping like I would in New Zealand in Australia so I sold this guy Steve my tent and other stuff and then it, well yeah it leaked horribly but so he was he spent a few nights just got totally drenched and then he saw my poem and he went Brian O'Keefe He's the guy that sold me my tent. And then my buddy Dan's the one there. You go, you know Brian. Well, I'm trying to find him. And so it was just a weird, small world thing. And But I still, to this day, think of Sir Edmund Hillary in, at the time, what turned out to be the largest rainfall in New Zealand's history, in 24-hour history. It was 21 inches of rain in 24 hours. And if you can imagine it being like a funnel and how fast that river got out of control, that Sir Edmund Hillary was up on that rock somewhere trying to weather it out. Pretty amazing. That is that is absolutely incredible. He's still around, right? I think he passed away recently, but if he didn't, I apologize. So how how does a flash flood work? I don't want to get, you know, sidetracked here, but you're just hanging out on the river and all of a sudden an enormous flood of water comes, or does it have does it come gradually so you have time to escape? Not much time because uh, it could be a, a thunderstorm isolated in one, say, canyon. And anywhere you live, you can have a flash flood. And it's generally a rocky region without a lot of good soil to absorb moisture. So 
even if it's just a thunderstorm and it hits one area, it could send, you know, people say a wall of water. I don't know if it's actually quite like that. I think it'd be rushing water that's getting bigger and bigger behind it. But uh, when, it, when, when canyons get narrower and narrower, it really accelerates and it builds. And in our case, it was a forest and that probably slowed it down a little bit, but to the, we, we could, we couldn't outrun it. We had to stay in the canyon and, and, uh, we just tried to get higher and higher to get away from that surge of water. But the interesting thing is it went down as fast as it came up. And so one day it was pretty nice and sunny and literally the water just moved out back into its channel and left trout in these puddles. And I spent a whole day just scooping up brown trout and then running fast over to the river and tossing them back in. And I did that until uh, I couldn't find any more trout. And any that I didn't find, you know, wouldn't last too long. They would all die. But uh, it was fun <laughs> to see three, four-pound browns just splashing around. But that water went out so fast that they were stranded. It was pretty amazing. Wow, that's crazy. Okay, so you get kicked out of the <laughs> you get kicked out of the country. Well, how long were you in Australia for? Five months. I went. I okay. bought that Volkswagen in Melbourne and drove it to Perth, and then got a job way out in the outback in a tiny little town that had an iron ore foundry, and so trainloads of iron ore would come in. And I didn't know what I was doing. I worked with a bunch of prisoners, murderers, and stuff because there was no one to work out there. And they stole all my money. They stole my passport. I was so stranded there now. And so, yeah, we took all that iron ore and put in these giant kettles that were the size of a semi truck on these giant rollers, and it would heat up. And then all these explosions, and then pour it out into smaller ladles and move those on tracks. And then would get to be maybe only. Uh, a couple gallons, three or four gallons of molten steel or iron or whatever we're making. And I made things like manhole covers. I make the mold with the molds and the sand, and, and then we pour it in the hole. And a few minutes later, you have a manhole cover. And and so you know now, because Sydney's got a nice climate. It's not as hot as other parts of Australia, but out there in the outback on Christmas Day, it was 125 Fahrenheit for your American audience. And what would that be? 44 or something Celsius? I don't even know. I mean, mm -hmm. Sounds like December around here. Yeah, we, so, we, we get 44 and 45 out here. And it's, so it's so funny because they have the flocking, the white stuff in the corners of the stores and Christmas trees. And it's 125 degrees out, but it was 170 degrees inside where I worked. So it was just brutal. And then there were those famous fires. Even, you know, when I was there, they were, and, and everybody's in the fire department. So you had a little bit of training. And what would happen with this one fire uh, broke out near town. So we all got scrambled in trucks and roar over there. And they give you a wet burlap bag, like a potato sack, a wet potato sack. And that's to beat the fire with. And as you know, there is every kind of creepy, crawly thing that can bite, sting, and kill you. So there's snakes. There were spiders, and there was these big kangaroos coming through the smoke at full blast, you know, right by you. And uh, that was a pretty interesting experience. <laughs> no doubt. But when it's that hot and you get a fire, oh, my God. Now when I see on the news the fires in Australia, I just know what they're talking about. It's really scary. It moves so fast and so hot and dry. But, um, yeah, that was a neat little 
couple days of beating fire with a sack. Did, did you fish while you were down here? I, I wanted to fish in the snowy mountains uh, between Melbourne and Sydney, but I never did. But I kept all my gear. I, well, all my gear was one Fenwick fiberglass rod, a Fluger Mellis reel. And I also had my skis because um, I the reason I went to Kashmir, India after all that was to teach skiing in a little ski resort called Gulmarg at 10,000 feet in the Himalayas. And so... There I am in the middle of the outback with a backpack, with a fly rod, which was only two-piece rods back then, and then skis, poles, great big boots, tons of stuff. It just looked insane. And uh, that was also pretty weird going through Thailand and other parts of India, that sort of thing, with all my stuff, because you have time for a quick four-minute story on my Yeah, chest. go for it. It's fascinating. <laughs> this is so bad. So... Yeah, I'm just a kid, kind of, you know, and I, my flight, after I saved some money up because the convict stole all my money and the passport, so it took me a while to get a new passport. And then once I got a passport and some money saved up, I could make the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And so it was time for me to go. And I just drove my Volkswagen to the airport, left the keys in it, walked into the terminal, and flew to Jakarta, Indonesia, and it was supposed to be Jakarta, Indonesia, I think Hong Kong, and then Bangkok, Hong Kong, one back and forth, then to New Delhi, India. And in Indonesia, I wanted to stay a little while because my brother and I were volunteers at the Woodland Park Zoo in Seattle in the reptile house, and he had monitors and lizards and pythons and boas, all this stuff all over his bedroom. It was just crazy. He had a little caiman, like a crocodile, you know. So I'd always heard about the Komodo dragon on the island of Komodo, and, you know, not quite as far as Bali, but uh, in Indonesia. I thought it'd be really cool to go check it out. And so while I was in Jakarta, which is one of the biggest cities in the world, and they have no idea how many people live there. It's impossible to do a census. I wandered around, and I had my big old pack on, and I apparently got a couple of streets away from where I was really supposed to be, um, more, not really touristy, but just a little bit safer. And I was in a back street and then a group of about seven lepers attacked me and they wanted all my gear and I don't blame them. I mean, they're horrible, you know, disfigured people dressed in rags. And they, they, they only could survive by begging and they wanted my backpack because they figured there was a treasure trove of clothes. And, you know, if they only knew it was pretty raunchy, but, um, I used my Fenwick rod case as a weapon, and I, I did seriously kind of Indiana Jones on them a little bit. I was surrounded. I was whacking one here and whacking one there. And I, you know, The last thing you really want to do is hurt someone with leprosy. So I just it was a it was a plastic tube, and it didn't do a lot of damage, but it sounded like it did. It would make a bang, bang, and I'd whack a couple guys, and then they gave me a little space, and I just ran, got back three or four blocks away, where it was better, and I saw back in those days, Pan Am was the worldwide airlines. It was Pan Am Worldwide Airways, I think. So I saw their logo on a building. I walked down there and I opened that door, and then this air conditioning air hit me after being in this ninety-five percent humidity, fighting for my life. And uh, that air conditioning hit me, and then someone very nicely said, "How can we help you?" I said, "I'd like to." maybe get the next flight out of here 
<laughs> it was just too hot and too crazy. And I was running out of time a little bit. So I flew to, I think it was Bangkok and then New Delhi. And on the way home, I went Hong Kong, Tokyo, Honolulu home. But anyway, on the way over, so I'm in Bangkok for a couple of days and I don't have hardly any money. So I'm eating street vendor food and it's fried this and fried that. So it was pretty good. Thai food's great. Well, how sick know. did you get? I get sick every time I do that. <laughs> so I'm on a 747 going from Bangkok to New Delhi. And I start getting this grumbling thing in my stomach. Oh, I feel terrible. I just felt so weak. And I could feel like my face was just white and sweaty at the same time. And oh, God, my stomach's so bad. And uh, so about three quarters of the way through the flight, I finally get up and go back to the bathroom. And you know, I'd left a fairly warm place in Thailand. So I was wearing shorts and just a simple shirt. And I got in the bathroom. I'm not going to gross you out or anything, but you know, I was in there a while and I was, <laughs> and I got more sick and more tired and my face just felt cold, but sweaty and, I was weak. I just couldn't even think about getting up. And then the, I heard this little dang and the announcement came on to sit down and we're going to be landing shortly. And I'm thinking, oh, God, no. What am I going to do? Because I really couldn't leave. I think there was still more business to do. So I just sat there. During landing? I landed that in that 747 in the bathroom. And then... I don't even know if they use the word deplane. You know, it's like a new Scrabble word. They didn't even have the word deplane until whatever. Everybody got off the plane and they never checked the bathroom. And I was shy. I'm a kid. You know, I'm not going to go, hey, knock, knock, knock. I, hey, I'm in here. Don't come in. <laughs> you, you'll regret it. But the plane, you know, everybody got off. And then I felt it move. I thought, oh, no. I wonder what's going on. You know, I can't. And they didn't load it. I didn't think they were going to fly away somewhere, but they actually taxied and parked in a place that I guess you just park planes. Finally, I get enough strength to get up and go out. I don't think I had any carry-ons. Uh, that wasn't such a big thing. And I just walk up there, the the cabin for the pilots is completely empty. I could get in there and just take that. <laughs> and they didn't have a big ramp. Now we're way away from the airport with two airstrips between where we parked and where the, the terminal is. But they had a little metal staircase thing. And I climbed down that staircase in my shorts. And it's really cold in Delhi, probably in the upper 20s or something for me. Um, below freezing for you. So... I uh, I look left, I look right, this giant runway. So one runway's for taking off and one runway's for landing. And all these jets are coming and going, so I, and it's really wide. You feel like just a flea when you're out in a place like that. So a plane landed, and I ran as fast as I could to get on the other side, and then I have to go through this grass for a while, and then I have to wait for other planes to land or take off, whichever they were doing. I finally run across there, and then... The Jeeps and the army trucks start pouring out of everywhere, and they got me. I, I figured that this wasn't a normal deal, but I hadn't really done anything wrong, and I actually needed to use the bathroom. So 
they load me up English speaking, so no big deal. I told them I said I was sick and I I'm stuck on the airplane and like, yeah, right. So into this room I go and they got my bags from baggage claim and they brought in my skis and my poles, which they were like making sword fights with, and these boots. Now I had big lang boots and they were unheard of in India. Even though they had a little ski resort up in Kashmir, but the average person didn't really know what skiing was. They actually pronounced it the I before the K. Ski is S-K-I, but they would pronounce it S-I-K, seek. And they go, oh, seeking, seeking, for seeking. Yeah, for seeking. And hold that thought, is there a bathroom here, you know? So here's the bathroom a couple times during my interrogation. And then when I came back, a guy had my giant ski boots in front of him, and he was going, Apollo, because I thought they were the moon boots that the astronauts wore on the moon, you know, and they were really, who is this guy? He's got swords. He's got a big plastic club. He's got these seeking shoes. And, well, they tore apart my whole backpack, and it was pretty grungy and stuff. And there was underwear and socks and fishing tackle and everything strewn about. And then they basically just got bored with me and figured I was just some crazy guy. And off they went. And I just had to repack all my gear back together and I got out of the airport and eventually by trains and and uh, buses ended up in Kashmir where my job was to teach skiing. And it was really cool because my students were world-class mountain climbing guides so that they would have a job in the winter and not just as guides in the summer. And they were, they were world-class. They all climbed Everest, and some of them had climbed K2 and Annapurna and other big mountains, and they're really cool guys, very strong and, and dedicated. And so we started their ski school. These were the instructors that were going to be the ski school next year. And even as a young kid, I was a good skier, and I, and I just put them through a whole winter of step-by-step, -step, you know, practice and training to learn how to ski. And a couple guys got on it pretty good and a couple didn't. And this is just so typical. One guy wiped out really bad and I could tell when his hand was facing the wrong way, they had dislocated his shoulder. And a guy saw that, just walks up to him, puts a ski boot in his armpit, grabs him by the wrist and just starts winding up his arm left and right doing figure eights and pops back in. And that was it. That was, oh, you're good. And then one of my favorite skiers, uh, we still talk a little bit to this day, thanks to the internet. And his name was Vijay Kumar Kaul. And he had a terrible toothache. And so we skied from our little village of Gomar to this other little village that had a traveling dentist that came through. And uh, so he, you know, gets to the building. They're going to check his tooth out. And it's basically just a huge cavity right up to the nerve, you know. So the dentist took a matchstick, a wooden matchstick, and pulverized it into pulp, added Novocaine to that pulp, and then jabbed it in the, into his cavity, and that was it. I mean, no filling, no nothing. It was just like, it was very temporary. I have a picture of him in the dental chair with his ski hat on, his goggles up on his forehead, and his ski sweater on, and, and uh, because the skiing in, in India was funded by the United Nations to promote tourism there, and so a lot of the equipment was Austrian, and Swiss, really good stuff. I I broke my skis when I after a while there, but I got a new pair because it was United Nations funded project. 
And uh, so he had a beautiful Austrian like racing ski sweater and his goggles on. He's getting matchstick pulp jabbed into his tooth. And that was just kind of how it was. I mean, we went skiing sometimes and had monkeys in the trees and, and uh, it was just a great experience. And, and when I left there, you know, I told everybody I have to leave on a certain date to catch my flight. And, well, slowly but surely, I, I didn't know it at the time, but my, the house I lived in um, was basically just a bump in the snow with a tunnel down into the house. It was four rooms and, and I was an employee. So I, I lived, that was employee housing and they had jobs for everybody. So, so one guy was just like a sweeper guy. He swept snow. One guy did the firewood. One guy did a little cooking, you know, and one guy did washing. And then, you know, his name was Naba, N-A-B-A. I say, hey, Naba, uh, i got to go in a few days and I really need, you know, my pants done from the laundry and my shirts and socks and stuff. He goes, oh, yes, I mean, no problem, no problem. Day before, I Naba, really? Need my pants and stuff. Well, he was just pilfering all my stuff, knowing that I had to leave and there was nothing I could do about it. When I left 10,000 feet in the Himalayas for Delhi, again, you had to walk a whole day to get to an end of a road. Then you could get on a bus or a taxi and then get to the train station in Srinagar and then get down to Delhi two days later. I left in my bell-bottom corduroy ski pants. Yeah, some the shirt that I'd had on for a couple of days. Nothing else. All my clothes were gone. <laughs> so I went to that airport. I went to Hong Kong and I got a room at the YMCA in my ski pants. And I toured around Kowloon and Hong Kong Harbor and went to the fence. And that was what they called Red China back then. Red China over there, Hong Kong over here. And then I went to Tokyo in my ski pants. And <laughs> And I got to the immigration and stuff, show my passport, and they look at me, and I look, like, oh, my God. Well, I didn't have any razor blades, so I had this big beard and this big head of hair. And, and then he said, how, 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 how long would you like to stay? And I said, well, I just want to see a little bit of Tokyo and walk around and stuff. And, and they said, how will you support yourself? How much money do you have? And I, $62 and a hamburger in Tokyo was about $15. So he goes, you don't have enough money. This is, this is a quote, April, a quote, you will have to steal. So that, Can I just take a bus and walk around, and, you know, YMCA, any youth hostel? He said, no. He says, the only way you can see Tokyo is you have to, Take the employee bus, which we will arrange. You ride in the employee bus for free into town, and then take it back. You have to spend the night in the airport. Well, okay. So I did that one, one or two nights. That was enough of that. You know, my ski pants walking around Tokyo. So I then went to Honolulu, which normally, you know, you want to get off for a few days and do a little body surfing and having fun, but not in my ski pants. <laughs> God, they were hot. <laughs> and then I flew to Portland. And uh, my mother, at that time, went from the University of Washington to Portland State University. She worked at Portland State. She had a house in a neighborhood called Selwood. I knew the bus routes in Portland really well, so I took the bus. At about 8 o'clock at night, I got near my house. And I get no cell phones or anything. My, my mom doesn't know I'm coming home after 18 months. And I did use a pay phone, but I, she didn't answer. Well, you know, she's. She could just be in the yard, you know. It was so different then. So I get out of the bus station near my house, and I walk. And 
lights aren't on. They go, God, you know, she could be in Seattle visiting friends or something. I'm like, how am I going to do? So with all the jet lag and travel, I was tired. I got my sleeping bag out and just slept on the porch. And she was actually at a French cooking class. And when she came home, she saw this pile of stuff at the end of the porch. She thought, darn it, the dogs have gotten in the trash again. And then she's unlocking the door. I heard a click. I went, hey, mom. She went, ah! And I just looked like, uh, oh, I don't know what I looked like. But that was that trip. And then a few weeks later, I'm up in Alaska. So uh, for the summer. And so just a lot of, of adventures. And I mean, from avalanches to that flash flood you talked about. And being attacked by lepers and... Oh man, there's tons of stuff. It was amazing, actually, just amazing. I didn't. I was so naive. I had no idea that, you know, tomorrow there was going to be a riot, and I'd be stuck in the middle of it. Didn't know who was fighting who, and their bombs were going off, and but just stuff like that. It's good character building, you know. <laughs> well, I'm seeing a trend here between being basically robbed in Australia, and then you know, basically mugged in Indonesia. And then <laughs> what happened in India? Are you just too trusting, Brian? When you were younger, were you just really trusting? Yeah. No, pretty much. Yeah. I still am. That's I was going to say, I think you still, yeah, you still have I that. <laughs> Coming up, Brian and I dive into how he got his start in the fly fishing industry. While I have you here, I'd like to introduce you to Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non-alcoholic. As someone who is regularly appointed as designated driver, there are times, especially after a long, hot day on the water, where I would also like to relax and drink a cold beer after fishing. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice-cold beverage without needing to worry about alcohol content. In 2020, they donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars went to maintaining trails and parks. Since they make non-alcoholic beer, they're able to ship it through the mail directly to you. And to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beers at athleticbrewing.com and use code ANCHORED20 to get 20% off your first order. So you come back home with some bumps and bruises, but some life experience. And then at this point, are you thinking you know, I need to make money to survive. Like, you know, with some guests, I never know if they're driven by, is it power? Is it money? Is it ego? And with you, it's, I can't see it being power or ego. So it must've been that you needed to feed yourself. Yeah. And, and that first summer in Alaska was great because, you know, we we're in the wilderness in a little cabin. We had a helicopter to get around on. And, and so it was, again, I, I was learning quite a bit. Uh, and had some great projects to do. And it, you know, it paid $4 an hour and, but there, we had to buy our own food, which was, you know, back when they did the pipeline, the famous pipeline in Alaska, it, people would really brag about, yeah, I, I got a job in Alaska making a hundred dollars a day. That was a big deal. Well, $4 an hour doesn't add up to a hundred dollars a day, but the price of food, just to give you an example, I bought a six pack of hams, small hams not tall boys for 48 dollars they were eight dollars a beer and they were hams so we just did we were as a crew we would just have to figure out we had to keep our food costs down because we were eating more than we were making and 
So we, our cabin was on Kenai Lake, and I fashioned up this thing with about 50 feet of maximum line and a couple hooks, and I didn't have any bait, you know, no worms or anything. It's permafrost. So I, I used a Vienna sausage on the hook, and I just threw it out there. What the heck, you know? And sure enough, I had two lake trout, not very big. These are 14 to 18 inch lake trout. And, you know, it's a real bland fish. They're they're not like a salmon or a halibut or, you know, other saltwater fish. The lake trout are pretty bland. And But it was food. And so I started doing two or three of those lines. I'm probably going to get a ticket now. And, and I was feeding the whole crew with fillets of these lake trout, and we would mix it with stuff to give it flavor. So it was great in scrambled eggs. And we'd make a paste out of it and with some cream cheese and, and stuff and make a sandwich spread. And we made it for dinner every way possible. And we basically came to the conclusion we've made everything with lake trout except a margarita. And so that helped us with our food budget immensely. And I turned 21 at that little cabin. And there was a place down the road. It might even still be there called Hamilton's Place. And Hamilton's Place was run by this guy named Hamilton. And he was really a grumpy old sourdough Alaska guy. And I had to finish my shift, but I could walk. It was probably three miles down to the little town. This was near Cooper Landing, Alaska. Great little place. And the other guys were off. So they were already there. They were drinking beers, having fun. And I get there finally, and, and there's a seat at the table of, for six people, six guys, and they had just ordered rounds of real drinks. And that was probably, you know, 10 bucks for a drink, which doesn't sound like too much right now, but holy cow, 10 bucks. That's, that's a lot. And, and as I was kind of scooching behind the guys sitting at the table, I bumped a light fixture on the wall. It's a, it's like a kerosene lantern, but wired with a light bulb in it. I bumped it and it popped out of the sheetrock and dangled on the wire. And this old man, Hamilton, is furious. And I tell him, hey, I know how to do it. I get, I'll get, i get some stuff. I can, I do sheetrock. I can make it look good. I'll be back. And I ordered, you know, something to drink. And there was already, I think there were six. And I was maybe the seventh because I knew it was an even number of drinks they had. And then when I got to my little spot after being wedged down there, I put a little too much pressure on the table. It was those little teeter-totter tables. It was just enough to pop it, knocked over $80 worth of drinks. So on my birthday, I bought the first round for 80 bucks and got kicked out. And so <laughs> there I was on the raid on my 21st birthday as everybody else was having just a great time. They played a couple games of pools. I'm like, all right, you guys, come on, let's go. But uh, <laughs> You know, great, you know, that's you grew up where there were bears and moose and all that stuff. So I was, I'd seen bears before, but not like Alaska, you know, where you go fishing. And if you hike for five or six miles each way, and I would actually kind of jog the trails. And so I had a couple of moose encounters that were a little dicey and a couple of bear encounters out in the middle of nowhere with nowhere to hide or run or anything. And that it was kind of scary, you know, for when you don't know really what's going on. No bear spray, no gun. and uh, But anyway, that was just another good experience. A really fun summer flying in helicopters, doing fun projects. And, uh, and so by the time I actually did, again, you heard my little college history. By the time I started that, I'd already been around the world. And I'd already 
you know, I'd met my brother in Greece when I was in high school because I'd saved some money for New Zealand and had enough for, to go visit him in Greece and Italy. He was riding a motorcycle all through that region, took a year off of dental school. So I'd already been all over Europe and, you know, just did it, you know, not on a tour. And he just did it freewheeling as two kids. And, and so I had all this fun and experiences and, and stuff. So when I went to Portland State, no, I'm sorry, Oregon State, I was a little bored. It wasn't like there weren't any guns going off or avalanches or flash floods. It was, it was kind of boring. So that's probably why I ended up going over to Bend where you could ski seven or eight months a year and fishing everywhere. And I was into bird hunting and did deer hunting and elk hunting and all that. So, yeah, it was just one thing after another. <laughs> because, no, I wasn't really motivated by money at all. Never have been. And then it was mostly about, I just wanted to find new places to fish, new places to ski, have friends. And, and, uh, and so when I ended up guiding on the Deschutes and the North Umqua, and I worked for the fly shop in Reading when they first opened in the late seventies. And I did some of their steelhead trips on the Klamath river. But then eventually that morphed into guiding in Alaska, but I wanted to quit on my 30th birthday and try to get, you know, back into the real world. What did they pay per day guiding in Alaska back then? Uh, I think you could make in in the late seventies, I think you could make a hundred dollars. Yeah. And you didn't have any place to spend it. And the tipping was pretty good. Um, but it was kind of funny when in one of my ski patrol jobs on Mount Hood, I had to be at the mountain at about five in the morning. So I was in a two wheel drive, rear wheel drive, old piece of junk Volvo. And I get up to the mountain to be the first tracks. I was up before the snow plows. Because I did the weather report, but I always have been a sort of a hobby weatherman. And so I would do temperature and I could see the stars. I could send this information down um, to the Oregonian newspaper, the radio stations. They could all give a ski, ski report. And then I would go to the shack and unlock it and get out big, big sticks of dynamite and bombs for avalanche work. And so I would bake the fuses and the blasting caps and tape them all up and get things ready because the other guys were coming to work and we'd put them in backpacks, start the chairlifts up, run up in the dark and start throwing bombs. And that paid $4 and 15 cents an hour. <laughs> so it was a labor of love. You can imagine, you know, I mean, ski patrol is just a great experience when you're young and, and, uh, and I did that in guiding. So it was sort of that, what people say today, live in the dream, you know? So, but at 30, when I quit, one of my, Actually, I had met Dennis Black, and a lot of people probably aren't familiar with his name if, if they're not my age. But Dennis Black started Umqua Feather Merchants, and now it's Umqua down in Colorado. And it used to be on the Umqua, on the North Umqua, in Glide, Oregon. And I, I would go down there and buy necks and different fly tying materials for a f sporting goods store that had a fly fishing department that I worked at when I was in school. And, and then Dennis and I kind of bonded because I had this really funny car. It was a Dodge Dart and had really a funny shape. And I wanted to make it kind of a, a literally it's the first minivan ever made. So I took out the back seats and I cut everything out that goes into the trunk. So when you open the trunk up, you can see all the way into the back of the driver's seats passenger seats. So I put some plywood down there, put carpet on it, and I could put my sleeping bag and a pad in there. And I could sleep in my little Dodge Dart when I fished. And so 
one day I was down on the Umqua and uh, parked it in the pool. I wanted to fish early in the morning, and I didn't hear another car show up, but apparently Dennis Black had driven down there too, and he saw a car, and he didn't see any fishermen, so he just thought, well, someone ran out of gas, you know, and so he was walking kind of by me, and that's when I would hold my trunk down with a little bit of bungee cord, and I popped it open and there I was and he was like oh my god oh, I'm sorry and he laughed about it and laughed about it and I went upstream and we split the pool in half he went down and I went up and I caught a really big steelhead on a swung muddler kind of semi skate semi sinking and and he came up and took all these pictures and I'm like oh these guys really into these pictures and stuff I wonder who this guy is well I kind of knew who he was but I didn't really know why he was taking all these pictures and stuff. but he was just early on in the game you know of fly fishing photography and stuff like that. So he ended up being a customer at a lodge I was at. And when I turned 30 and I hung it up, I flew home and I contacted him and I was hired on the spot. And so I immediately had a job as his, his first sales rep in the Northwest in Alaska. And then from that, um, it kind of, in a couple of days, I got Orvis. They never had a rep either in the Northwest or Alaska. So as the Orvis rep, Umqua rep, I had Lots of products are long gone now, like Bucks bags and sealed dry waders and things. And so uh, that started a whole new life, lifestyle, career. But it, you know, it goes back to what I said originally about my mother saying, you know, that was like, I was the guy that always wanted to have fun and goof off and looked forward to recess in school. You know, she always said, just do something you really like to do and something will happen. And eventually all that did, something happened. I ended up working for Sims, Patagonia. Orvis Scientific Anglers, great companies, and really, really good people. And I uh, did it for 22 years or something like that. And, and it was good to me. I made good money. And I had a, I started out, you'll love this, my territory for, for a fishing guy was Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, Alaska. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> it was work a day, fish a day. No internet, no cell phone, no sales manager knew what I was doing. I and, and especially in Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, they had so many guide trips that you really couldn't work in the morning or in the afternoon because trips were coming or going. So you'd fish in the morning, drive in in the like, 10, 30, 11 and when they were slow and work middle of the day. And then the trips came back. So I'd go fishing and I just did that forever. And then as, as business grew, I didn't need such a big territory and it shrunk down to just Washington, Oregon, Alaska. But I still went to Alaska two or three times a year. <laughs> I floated so many rivers. It was just great. I actually became very good at, at road accessible fishing in Alaska, which there isn't a ton of. But you know, you go north of Anchorage and to Wasilla and then up into the park and fishing all those rivers. It was really fun. And, and I had just a blast. It was, it was neat. Low overhead, pretty good money. Nobody knew what I was doing. I I had my biggest month ever as a rep, and it was seriously like $30,000 a month in my pocket. And and I was in Belize and Christmas Island that month. So. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. How come you decided not to guide past 30? That actually really surprised me. Um, I think it was I, – I looked at guiding, first of all, in, on the Deschutes, doing the salmon fly hatch and doing steelhead on the Umqua and things like that is – it's just – an extension of fishing. And uh, when I went to Alaska, 
uh, sort of the same thing. I wanted to see Alaska. I mean, it was all Bristol Bay, you know, and how am I going to see Bristol Bay without guiding? So it was more of a stepping stone to just learning, seeing, experiencing that world-class fishing. And, uh, but I just didn't think I wanted to do it forever. I still sort of believed in hire a guide, don't be the guide to a degree. You know, I should probably apply myself into something that's maybe a little more real, a little more traditional. Um, because the money wasn't that good, actually. And, and no, no, guides get paid pretty well. It's, it's, uh, it's not half bad. But, uh, I think also I just wanted to try something different. And, and, uh, and so by getting that job as a fly fishing tackle sales rep, man, that, I could still be a fishing bum. And, you know, I had skis and golf clubs and fishing gear and all my work rigs. And, <laughs> You no, know, my sales manager's just like, God, Brian's on the road all the time. He's all right. I'm just saying, wow. <laughs> I have seven out-of-state annual fishing licenses every year. So I had even at Florida. Oh, yeah, it was just great. You know, So no complaints. Sorry I'm going on so long. I no, that's okay. It's it's fascinating. Did you ever end up making a career out of your photography? Like when I think of you, I just think of you as a photographer. I mean, I know you ended up creating the magazine, which I'd like to talk about a little bit, but was that a really conscious decision? Did you decide, all right, I'm done with repping. I want to make my career off my photos? Nope. I never considered a career. I never never had a business card. And I never considered myself professional either because professionals make money and that's your job. Mine was a hobby out of control. Um, and I, I was selling a lot back in the day when there weren't a million people doing you know, once digital came along, fly fishing photography was just boom, exploding. And, and so when I was doing it, you know, Valentine Atkinson was kind of our hero. And then there was another photographer in California. Um, and then the Becks were kind of getting going back east. And then uh, just a few other people. There was a few specialists, like a black and white person in Bellingham, Washington, and maybe one or two saltwater people. You know, like Chico Fernandez that, that was doing, it. and Lefty was taking pictures too. So there weren't that many people uh, shooting film and having all that cumbersome gear. It just wasn't really cool. Uh, but it, I sure loved it. But I never thought of it as a job job um, because I just think, hey, I like to fish too much to just watch other people do it or just take pictures and go, oh my God, terrible cast. I remember one time I had a beautiful Canon body with a 300 telephoto on a tripod on a steelhead stream. And I need to get something out of the boat. So I walk away and something happened to the, one of the legs on my tripod. It kind of started to shimmy down and then the whole thing just slow motion tipped into the water. And that was about 3,500 bucks, maybe four grand worth of gear, not really insured or anything. So, yeah, there weren't a lot of people shooting fly fishing with film uh, to actually sell or publish in some way. <clears throat> but, you know, I had a great run during the film era and uh, lots of, you know, cover shots. I was doing stuff for Field and Street Magazine, which actually paid quite well. It's interesting, the pay now for fly fishing photography would equal the pay of about 1973. So it doesn't really pay too much. and But it's, a, it's sort of a lifestyle. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a way for me to see the world. So I would be on magazine assignments 
all over the world, you know, from Christmas Island to South America, back to New Zealand, Alaska, over and over, and did a few spots on as a guest host on a few TV shows and stuff. So I just really milked it, basically. And even though it wasn't a job job, you know, I, I have been on 150 trips outside the United States for fishing. So, and that's several a month for many years. And uh, I was just on the go, go, go. I'd get my work done as a rep, maybe work 20 days in a row, then take 10 days off and did that forever. And I, I think I've been to the Bahamas 35 times and Belize 35 times. So 70 trips right there to two countries. And so and I still just love those places. But there's no way I could afford that. Um, without being extremely wealthy. So the photography thing was, again, just kind of a neat little hobby out of control. And I managed to ride it as long as I could. I still do some of that. And it's part of my new job. You know, I work with this company called Levin Experience. And, you know, any any company now needs tons of photography for uh, social media, websites, blogs, newsletters. So I'm still doing it and I love it. And, uh, but in the early days, you know, it was pretty neat. We knew everybody and we knew all the editors and it was pretty cool. And one, I know, I remember one photographer in the Southeast who was always kind of mad at me because I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And he did. And he goes, I can't travel like Brian, you know, I got a life. And, uh, but yeah, the photography thing was, you know, uh, just, I'll be totally transparent my best year as a photographer i made about thirty thousand dollars and that was a really good year because i had several covers on field and stream and they paid i think fifteen hundred bucks and then i had a, probably eight or nine ten other cover shots that year and then lots of assignments and so i made 30 grand and that would be almost enough to live on maybe in 1992 but um, now the prices have come down and it's still a labor of love. I, I just enjoy doing it. And I, 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 I'm actually backing off on a little bit because I just don't want to have the latest, greatest state-of-the-art gear. I still shoot fairly old equipment. My favorite lens is a 7200 2.8 Canon lens, and it's probably 1800 bucks. and mine's 30 years old. So a lot of my gear is really old. I don't have all the latest and greatest state-of-the-art stuff, but I would if I was a pro, if that was my job. Yeah, I'd have to stay up to date. But I just enjoy shooting stuff, using my phone too, plugging it into my computer, playing around with them a little bit, put them in folders. And then if someone calls and says, well, do you have anything from Rorotonga? I go, yeah, by the way, I do have Rorotonga. <laughs> That's my saving grace is I've bummed around so long. I've got pictures from everywhere. And uh, so, yeah, April, I love it. It's It's just a companion hobby. What what inspired you to start Catch? Well, it was inspired by the economy in 2007 and 8 when we had a huge crash, real estate crash, everything went down, Cabela's closed stores, fly shops were going out of business left and right, and I started losing money as a sales rep. I would go to, you know, I was in Bend, and I'd drive to Spokane and see a customer, and he'd go, oh, so glad you're here. I need to cancel some orders. Like, Oh, that's not good. I'm spending money. I need two tanks of gas a day, usually. Hotel, and then I'm losing money. Canceled orders. So I, that happened in Bellingham. It happened in Ashland, Medford. So I was going all to my corners of my territory, basically throwing money out the window. So I knew I had to bail. 
And I did, and I was just sort of in limbo for a while. And Todd Bowen, who was my 50-50 partner in Catch Magazine, he was kind of in limbo too because he was shooting for, I'm not sure it was ESPN, but one of those um, cable channels that had a fishing show, a fly fishing around the world kind of show. So he was a cameraman in that. He had just survived, and as in everybody in this airplane in the Bahamas that was overloaded because the producer kept putting people and stuff on it, the pilot was freaking out. Well, they never got airborne. They crashed into the mangroves, and he was sort of like, uh, send, send my check to my house. I'll be there. I'm done. And so I knew Todd a little bit. Uh, we had mutual friends, and he lived in Bend at the time with his wife, and we hung out a bit, and we just decided, like, you know, I need a job. He goes, I need a job. What, what do you think? Should we do something? And so we would go down to a McMinimums, which is famous. It's actually pronounced McMinimums, I think. Uh, they have about 40 pubs in Oregon. Old schools, old churches, old hospitals. They're really cool. We would go to this one booth way in the corner. It was really dark, so we could get our laptops out and start. He was the video guy, and he was really competent, you know, internet media guy. And I was sort of a photographer guy and a bit of a wordsmith. I'm good at Scrabble. So we sort of thought we'd do these, maybe something, you know, like a live magalog, like say there's an article on fly fishing in Alaska and you could click your mouse on the guy's raincoat. In, in the video or anything, and it would actually come up to a page of that for sale. And we thought, well, Cabela's would be, want this because it was state-of-the-art. No one was doing it. It was a little bit ahead of its time, and Cabela's was still in the in, you know, like economic crunch. That didn't fly. We tried another couple of prototype publications, and they just weren't quite right. And we said, you know what? I like to take pictures. You love to shoot video. Let's find some other photographers. Let's just do a real classy kind of coffee table book of fly fishing magazines and, and online only. And, and we did, and it was quite popular. It was free for several years. And, you know, we were in 180 countries and we'd have soldiers email us from Baghdad about, God, I love this issue. And, you know, believe it or not, there's fishing in Baghdad. And we would have stuff from Finland and all over. And we had so much fun with it back then. And uh, I'm sure it's still fun now, but I did it in about eight years. And, you know, there's, when you make an online magazine, you're on your computer all day, every day, most of the night. And Todd and I are emailing at 10 o'clock at night. And I'm getting a little bit ready to get outside more. And so I just gave Todd my half and still like to contribute and help him. I'm his biggest cheerleader. I love the publication. It's beautiful. And, uh, and then I went on and, and, and got to work. I did a little work with the fly shop in Reading and, you know, got to go to Brazil and Kamchatka and all this cool stuff with their travel department and then ended up where I am now with 11 experience 11 angling and uh but but kind of going back to one of your original questions about photography that's kind of what opened those doors too was that you know people knew me because they'd see my name on a photo and you know then there was just sort of a demand for someone sort of all-round experience in fly fishing to work with these big companies and and the fly shop in Reading's big in their travel department and then I did a little stint with Cabela's, and then uh, this thing at Eleven Experience came along. So it's all been a stepping stone. One thing leads to another process, and and uh, to be honest, I forgot what your original question was. <laughs> That's okay. I'm so famous for drifting off. 
wild changes. Just but, about catch. You, you answered that. Yeah, do you do you right. know that you actually are who inspired me to? You're the person who inspired me to start flats fishing. No kidding. Yeah, wow. you done that video with with Klug, but there was that photo. Do you remember that photo underwater of the permit? Yeah, it's actually I, I well never. Known. Yeah, it's a cool shot. I love it. That was shot with film, by the way. And uh, yeah, that's that's a neat one. I was lucky, got lucky on that one. How did you do that back then? Well, um, there was a dive camera that everybody from National Geographic to Scuba Divers used. Was called a Nikonos Five, and I had a couple of them. And then I bought this lens. It was a fisheye lens, so it had a big the big bubble on the front, and basically you opened it up, put your film in, wound it up. And, you sealed it with these rubber gasketed closures and you could attach a flash to it. You could, you, it was the dive cam. We saw in all the national geographic scuba shows and stuff. It was very, very good quality. It was good to 300 feet if you dropped it, I guess. So um, that's what I used back in the day. And I still sort of miss that camera. It was it's dedicated underwater only. And, uh, and now there's so many different sort of hybrids. There's, a lot of housings for cameras and there's some underwater cameras that really aren't that great. The quality is not that great, but anyway, it's still, there's more options than there were, but that was a case of a fish being revived. And I just kind of walked around it and did a click, wind, click, wind, click, wind, because it was about a dollar a picture in the film era for really good quality film and development and mailing it to San Francisco and getting it back. So it was about a dollar a click. Did you imagine on your cell phone, if you had a dollar a click, and these friends of mine have 7,000 pictures on their phone. Holy cow. It's a whole other world. But so I was really selective on, on what I did. But of that kind of walk around the permit as it was being revived, um, that one that you saw was just the right angle, the right depth, the right light. And, and it was cool. It was really fun. Do you ever feel like photographers, longtime photographers, are being pushed out by iPhones and a lot of the new photographers who work for free often? Oh yeah, it's definitely a lot of, a lot of uh, old timers when they get together, they just reminisce about the good old days, you know, <laughs> and uh, and they were to a degree, but I wouldn't trade digital for anything. I mean, it's just such a cool way to do things and instant gratification. Oh, let's change that, or oh, your pockets flipped open, put your pocket back down. You know, I mean, just amazing to just delete, delete, click, click, delete, delete, click. Oh, there's a winner, and. Uh, I wouldn't trade that for anything, but you know the business side of it is totally different, and, and of course, just social media has changed it entirely to not be about the fish so much or the circumstances of fly fishing, but more about the person, the me, the me, me, all mine thing. And I just sort of get turned off by that a little bit, and I think we need to just respect our subject, which if it is a fish. It, I don't like people using fish as props, you know, and doing something with their hand, like a gang sign with a big fish or really just kissing a fish. And that sort of thing. I think it's sort of silly. We should respect the fish more as a living, breathing, cool, super cool animal and not hold it over our heads or make a statement with the fish. I mean, just please leave it in the water, on the water and respect it uh, and so i've i've changed a little bit i've done those other shots in the in the day you know i mean i didn't know any better and i'm 
well, I'm going to fish photography hell. And when I'm done, because, you know, I've, I've overshot some fish and, you know, I, I'm totally different these days. But, yeah, I went through that stage. But, yeah, I like to just keep it really simple, maybe a little more traditional than most people do right now and not make a an agenda statement out of catching a fish of hash, 30 hashtags on a picture or, you know, just trying to be somebody overnight, that sort of thing. So anyway, you can get me going forever, but I'm not radical about it. It's just a sign of the times. It's just how things are done now. So, uh, but you said, do I miss it or something? But I, I do miss how, what a small, cool little world it was, but I just love digital photography. I think it's just awesome. You know, Oh, I'm sorry, I've been able to do a shot and put it on Catch Magazine and have it go out to 180 countries. You couldn't do that with paper. You couldn't do it with slide film. So, and then being able to, you know, if you are if you have a product or service, a guide service, you can have your Instagram and your Facebook. And, man, it's just, it's a very, very good tool. It's just sometimes abused. Oftentimes abused. You know, of of all the people I know, I, you're in my top five people I, I can think of who I think should write a book. Have you thought about writing a book? Yeah, I already did during our conversation. Just talking <laughs> about, you know, Indonesia and wildfires in Australia and avalanches in, in the Himalayas and bears and plane crashes and stuff. So I think it would actually be a pretty good read. I just, uh, I don't have the time. And you know what? I'm going to regret that someday because I'm going to forget everything. And fortunately, my life is very well documented in photography from about age 16 on, even with those old crummy prints from my Instamatic camera. But I think it would be okay. I think it'd be kind of entertaining because I, I didn't do it on purpose. Things just happen organically that put me in these weird places or the the magazine shipped me off to Africa to catch tarpon, you know, and then there was a war going on. We didn't even know about it. There was a head on a stick and just crazy stuff. And I think it, I think it'd be an okay read. I just haven't got the time. I think about how many stories and then, geez, I kind of have to be accurate with the time and the, what really happened. And uh, do I remember, remember it that well? Um, but April, I will give you credit for, pushing me just a little bit closer to doing so. Good, good. Let me know if I can help push you further because I think that it would, I think that that's what's missing a, a lot nowadays, especially, I mean, look at the photos, look at what's missing is the story, right? And and, and uh, the reality is, is times have changed so much, especially in recent years that the stories that you've experienced and, and the experiences that you've had, we'll just never, none of us are ever going to get to yeah. relive, relive or live, you know? Yeah, and I like the connection that I had with a mother that insisted that I don't just go to work in a tall building and go have life experiences, and then something will happen from that. That was a real cool deal. And then my grandparents, of course, that got me into fly fishing, and, and my grandmother was a fly angler. She, and that's why people, you know, 50-50 on the water, and everything, I go, well, that's great, but my family, there wasn't a gender thing about fishing, fly fishing. Everybody was the same, you know, so... I was just lucky to be, you know, born with a mom who, she wasn't a hippie, but she was in that hippie era as a college instructor with, you know, live your life, be free, <laughs> have fun. And, 
and it worked for me. And then, of course, my granddad teaching me 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty neat. And then the photography thing was great because I met all these cool editors and, and stuff. And they said, hey, Brian, we, we're going to do a project in, well, even if it was just the Bahamas or Canada or Alaska, somewhere fairly close. It was still just a world-class experience for me because I can't afford to go to lodges. And, and now I work for a company that owns lodges. So it's just been a neat cycle of luck and not you know, jumping on just any opportunity, but looking at it as, as a, as a stepping stone to bigger, better, basically bigger, better fishing and <laughs> having to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say, I'm, I'd say that you're there because I think 11's got some pretty spectacular lodges from what I've seen. Oh yeah. You know, their operation in Iceland is to die for. It's so amazing. And then, you know, cabins on Atlantic salmon rivers, we won't see another angler and it's all that beauty and the geysers and the waterfalls. And you throw in New Zealand and Chile, Colorado, motherships and stuff. It's a pretty cool gig. No doubt. Do you ever regret not having a family? That's personal and you totally don't have to answer it. But I'm, I, 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 I wonder it sometimes. My friends and, and new acquaintances always ask me, you know, I never had kids. And, and I'll be absolutely honest, two reasons why. One, I was a little bit selfish with my time and what I wanted to do. I saw the world early in Greece and Italy in, in the 17, in Istanbul, Turkey, as a you know, young teenager wandering around. And then that big New Zealand, Australia, India trip, I was still a young person. Well, I, I had the bug pretty bad after that. It, I kept meeting people that said, well, if you like this, you should try that. And I just had a bucket list that would never end. And so I was a little selfish. I didn't want to just throw that, not necessarily away, but it would impact, even having a dog would impact that lifestyle. And so um, my neighbor would introduce me to his friends as, this is Brian O'Keefe, no wife, no kids, no pets, no houseplants. <laughs> but, you know, I did get married twice. Anyway, so uh, kids, no. I, the other reason why, you know, I didn't get married my first time until I was 47. I never really met anybody that I thought would be a mom that I relate to as far as a good mom and all that. I, I was a ski bum and fishing bum. And so the women that I knew were active in those sort of sports and weren't really into settling down and that sort of thing. So, you know, that just didn't happen. But I, you know, do I regret it? I don't really know if I do or not. I coached a lot. I coached gymnastics and springboard diving. And taught a lot of kids how to ski um, over the years. And uh, that was my little fix, I guess. You know, doing gymnastics takes you know a lot of discipline in the sport. Uh, there's some danger involved. It was really a responsible job I had with Parks and Rec or with some private clubs. And uh, so I got them at their best. You know, I, you know, they're, they, I got them when they were passionate about something. They all wanted to be Olga Corbett or Nadia Komodich and be in the Olympics. And so I had them at their best, and then I didn't have to deal with all the other stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> or pay for them. Yeah, well, look, right. I, what's, I'll, I'll wrap it up, even though I know there's ten, there are 10 million stories we haven't covered. But what's next for you, Brian? A well, book. I really... <laughs> Sorry. Okay, we're here in April 2021. One. <laughs> yeah. And this is my calendar. And, uh, you know, pretty horrible pandemic has 
turn the world upside down. And one thing that's happened that I've kind of enjoyed, if I can, if you can get any joy out of any of this, but it's it's that I've you know always been active with fly clubs doing presentations. You've done hundreds of them, and I started doing my first one in 1976 with a slide projector and a tray of slides and going around. And now that it's on Zoom, <laughs> I like that. I think that's kind of cool. You know, you yes, I'll never go back to person again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So I did a. The Long Island Flycasters in Long Island, New York. I did them last week, and it's just so cool. You can click on a button and see who's out there and what they're doing, what they have in their background, and and uh, you know, it's an hour and a half, and it's sort of meeting people and, and getting into their world a little bit, which I always liked about the in-person fly club visits because you stay in touch. You know what people are into, what they like, what their local fishing's all about, and I think that's just something that's good for me and what I do. I'm just collecting and observing. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to doing more of those. I, I like them. I think they're really fun. And then my current job is great. I, I can, I can do it for a while. And, you know, it's, it's pretty comes natural to me what I do. And it's, so if you like your job and you like the people you work with, I'm, I'm great with that. I mean, I have to work. I'll probably have to work my whole life. And, uh, and then just keel over, hopefully. But, uh, so I, don't, I really don't know what's really big on the on the future, but I, I just enjoy my job right now, and that gets me out and about. Um, you know, we got tarpon trips, we've got Atlantic salmon, we got rainbows, we got brown, so bonefish. So I'm good with all that. I don't have anything major on the horizon, and uh, but I still have just crazy desire to fish. I mean, it's kind of immature or stupid or something, but I just love to fish and uh, I'm just going to keep doing it. Well, I hope you do. I hope you never change, Brian. I think you're perfect just the way that you are. Thank you. For <laughs> we haven't even talked about gardening. That's my second big thing. Besides fishing in photography, I'm a lifelong gardener. So right now, because I live in the Snake River Valley, the climate here is so much better than the ski towns I've lived in in the past that I grow these giant watermelons and cantaloupe and every kind of tomato and I have gigantic gardens and I like flower gardening too and, and fruit. So I've got a little mini orchard and all that. So we didn't even talk about that, but that's, I could go on forever about growing a great cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, I didn't even, I didn't know you were into gardening. That's great. Yeah, lifelong. What about, what about mushroom picking? Did you ever get into that? I did morels. I don't know my mushrooms that well to be really, um, well, to me, it would be experimental. Like, what the heck is that? I wonder if it's edible. you got to get a book or go online or something. So I, I know morels and a few others, and that's what I do. Um, and that's fun. I like doing that. I like berry picking, too, in the mountains. Right. I like your style. Well, I'll let you get back to uh, probably bed. What time is it there now? Jeez, Louise. Uh, I'm on mountain time. It's 11.46 p.m. Oh, my gosh, Brian. You're a champion. Oh, thank you so much. And, yeah, you drove four hours. So for people listening – Brian fished, I guess, a lake. We'll keep it nameless. I was in northeast Nevada this morning. And, and now thought, you're in Oregon. <laughs> I thought I would get in and have maybe an hour to watch Downton Abbey and then have you for the podcast, but uh, I'll get Downton Abbey tomorrow. Okay. Well, get some rest, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. And, yeah, I just hope that we get to see, see and hear more from you. Thank you, April. I've enjoyed every second. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 